never know the, whether you won or lost by looking at that score because you can get lucky or the other team could get lucky or you get a bad call in the last moment. There are going to be those times. The only way you know you won is what you can control, which is did you give every ounce of yourself every moment you're on that court? Because if you did that every moment on the court, most of the time you're going to have the highest points and you're going to, over time, be the champion. Hmm. But if you didn't give your all and you still have more points, you're a loser. And so that mindset is the mindset that I look at life with and that I try to share with people who get caught up in sports. Here we go, everyone. Tony Robbins. Throughout our interview, we harp on what he calls a lifetime of putting yourself on the line. And there's only one way. It's forward. Tony's been dubbed by national and international publications as the number one life and business strategist. He's been a multiple-time number one New York Times bestselling author. He's an entrepreneur and one of the world's greatest philanthropists. Tony's the founder of over half a dozen private companies that generate close to 10 Bs in annual sales. Each of these operate under the same creed, which he says is improving the quality of life for people around the world. On the philanthropic front, the Tony Robbins Foundation and Feeding America have been working closely together to feed children all over the world. And he's on his way to, get this, feeding a billion people. He's been at it for 37 years. And just last year, in 2017, Tony and his team fed 100 million homes. I was introduced to Tony Robbins on the Tim Ferriss podcast. Well, let me be clear. I I knew who Tony was. I actually had one of his first books. It was called Awaken the Giant from Within. But when I say introduce, it was by hearing him through this new medium, podcasting. His passion and energy jumped through the speakers at me, his thoughtfulness and care. After listening to that first show several times through, I shared it with my friends, and then I officially turned into a Tony Robbins maven. I watched his I Am Not Your Guru doc that premiered on Netflix last year and thought to myself, man, I got to get Tony on my show. (laughs) His latest bestseller just hit paperback called Unshakable. Tony interviewed 50 of the world's greatest financial minds and created a step-by-step guide on how to accelerate your path to financial freedom. I love that book, highly recommend it. But what I really enjoyed about it, we talk about this on the show, is how he describes true wealth. I could go on forever about Tony. It's obvious. So let's just get right into it. Suiting Up is a show that explores the psychology, playbook of tools, and strategies of the most influential people in sports, entrepreneurship, and entertainment. Here we go. So this person needs no introduction. Tony Robbins, I'm so <laughs> grateful to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. And uh, you know, for your audience to know, you, you practice what you preach. You cold called on my PR agent almost <laughs> a year ago, said yeah. I really want to connect. And you were really, see, we talked about this off the air, but I want your audience to know what a kind person you are. It's one of the reasons I'm on your podcast as well, is you know, you're incredibly successful. And I love that you've done all these micro loans and you're just a great entrepreneur and a great athlete, but you're a great person. And you took the time on the phone with her son, Joey, and and really made him feel special. And so you know, that, that sticks out for me. And you didn't have to do that. And you didn't have to have that kind of initiative. So I, I'm grateful to join you today. Well, I appreciate that. And I had no idea going into it. I, and I clicked through your website to get in touch with Jen. I had no idea that she had the connection to lacrosse through Joey. And it yeah. shows that, you know, just that blind faith and that trust in the process and, and taking a chance, kind of getting over the hump of fear or doubt that, hey, how could yeah. I one day get in touch with this man who I've looked up to for so long and consumed so much of his content? And, uh, and here we are. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a full circle and, and full transparency. I appreciate you sharing that. And, and in a way, you've referenced over time this notion that we're an amalgam of the five people or the most people we spend our time with, but that doesn't have to be in the flesh. 
And, and to right. a degree, like, you know, reading about you, going to your events, I've been fortunate to consider you uh, in that circle of influence for me. How do you think about uh, mentorship? How do you think about your connection? Because you're reaching millions of people every day. Well, I, I feel it's such a privilege. It's a responsibility and it's a privilege. And it's one that I've earned by doing the very same things myself. You know, I grew up in a very tough environment, um, tough not only economically. We had no money for food at times. It's one of the reasons I feed 100 million people a year for the last four years. And I've been doing feeding people for, you know, 37 years, to give you an idea. But it came about because I went through so much suffering myself. But the way out of that for me was books because I didn't have access to people. Mm. I grew up in an environment there was no one successful in terms of terms of growing or impacting the world or even business or finance. And so I started reading. I took a speed reading course and I started saying I'm going to read a book a day. And I didn't do that. But I read 700 books in seven years in the area of human development, psychology, physiology. And then you know, I got obsessed with net time. You know, how could I – spend no extra time and feed this brain. And I started doing audios back when, you know, there were cassettes. That's how old I am. <laughs> and so, and I would spend $300 for six cassettes on this subject, you know, and I was working as a janitor, you know, and I'd, I'd save up all my money to make this stuff happen. But I think the books and the audios and then live events that I went to became the most powerful of all, which is why I eventually became what I am in my, my core business. And I think it was just this idea that if I can learn by other people's experience, if I learn by my own experience, it could take me 20, 30 years. I want to compress decades into days. Hmm. And so when I think about mentorship, I think about who is the best on earth. And the good news about it today is you can access the best on earth in most cases because they, they usually have a podcast or they have right. a following on Instagram or you know they have, they have a blog. And you really can tap in, even if you don't have direct access to some of the most brilliant minds in the world. But the way I look at it, like when I was running, you know, first in 2008, I'm seeing all these people being destroyed by the stupidity and the manipulation of certain people in the financial markets. And and then, you know, I looked two years later and the penalty we gave them was we gave them more of our money. <laughs> so my way to attack it was, I, you know, I've coached Paul Tudor Jones, one of the top 10 financial traders in the world for 25 years, you know, every day. He hasn't lost money in those 25 years in his investment. So he's a pretty unbelievable man. And I learned so much, but I thought if I could interview 50 of the smartest human beings on earth who all started with nothing, nobody from the lucky sperm club, everybody who built yep. it from nothing, and I could find out what they have in common since they're all so different, and I could teach that to a millennial just getting started who thinks they have too much debt and they'll never get out of it, or hmm. You know, a baby boomer who thinks, oh, I, I started too late. I can never get there. I could really change these people's lives. And it'd be unassailable because it's not my approach. Yeah. It's the best on earth's approach. And so that's how I look at it. So, you know, I, I did the same thing you did. I had some relationships, fortunately. But I cold called him like Ray Dalio. You yeah. know, it's like greatest hedge fund investor in history. And, you know, fortunately, I've been around a long time. And it turned out he was a fan of mine for 20 years. And so Amazing. the doors open. And then I served people and they opened more doors. And pretty soon I was doing interviews with people who hadn't done an interview in 10 or 12 years in any financial media who made $4 billion last year in the investment area. And so that kind of thing just it's self-reinforcing. The more you learn, the more you want to learn, the more you want to serve. And when you keep growing, you have more to give. And, uh, you know, I've been doing this for four decades. Yeah. So at this point, I have to be an idiot not to see there are patterns that make people crazy, make them angry, make them sad. And there are patterns that make you grateful and excited and passionate and go for it. And it, it's not us. It's patterns. It's hard to change yourself. It's easy to change a pattern. So now I get the call when Serena Williams is burning down on national television. and I got to change it now. And there's no net. And yeah. so since there's no net, I have to find a way. I've been able to do it, fortunately. And she turns around. Everybody sees it. Or, you know. 
a child is hmm. suicidal or the adult, you know, knock on wood, I've never lost one in, you know, 41 years. And we do follow-ups two or three years later. And some people have seen um, I'm Not Your Guru on Netflix where you yep, see me work great. with several of those. But you see those people three years later and they're still transformed, you know? Or I get the phone call, true story, when President Clinton calls me and says, they're going to impeach me in the morning. What should I do? And I'm like, dude, how about you call me sooner? I'm <laughs> 32. But then I got to figure out what to do. And because there's no net, I figured it out. So I think it's it's a lifetime of mentoring but it's also a lifetime of putting yourself on the line wow. where you have to develop. It's like I always tell people, if you want to take the, you know, the, the island, burn your freaking boats. Because as long as there's a way out, the human mind trying to protect you from failure, trying to protect you from mental, emotional survival will give you an excuse to better. I don't give myself that excuse. There's only one way and it's forward. And so fortunately, most of the time I figured that out over 41 years. Amazing. So Unshakable out on paperback now and... I love this book, and we're going to jump through certain areas because you're so good at articulating and breaking down the thought process. Before we do, where did you develop that curiosity when you were younger and you said, hey, I want to read a bunch of books? Like, Where do you think that comes from? Is it I innate? It's you know, a great question. I think there might be some of it's innate. You know, I'm a curious individual, but I think it's more, I've always had this desire. I love human beings, and I hate pain for anybody. Again, I don't think it's because I'm so perfect. It's because... I just experienced so much myself, so I project yeah. what that would feel like another person, and it makes me want answers. And early on, I figured there are answers, and then rather than be a victim and feel sorry for myself, which means a life of pain, um, I got to break out of this. And if I can help myself break out of this, like I've always believed my whole life, if I come across some real problem, if I can solve that problem within myself, in my body, in my relationship, my finances, whatever, then I can help millions of people to solve it. And so I think, I think it's a combination of the desire to really serve and the desire to, uh, to grow and expand and have a life that's meaningful. Cause yeah. you know, just giving up is not a meaningful life. I, I just not willing to be a victim. My mom, as you probably know, is a love me dearly, love my brother and sister dearly, but I'm the oldest by five and seven years. And, uh, she abused alcohol and, and prescription drugs and people change when they do that. And I, I knew she loved me, but she would beat the hell out of me, beat my head against the wall until I was bleeding or she'd say I was lying and pour liquid soap down my throat till I threw up and I wasn't lying. And Gosh. so when your brain is like, I love this person more than anybody on earth, I know they love me and yet they're hurting me. Yeah. It made me have to become a practical psychologist because otherwise I would just be hateful or I'd just be a victim. And so I, I figured I need to know what makes her do what she does, what makes her say, what makes her go crazy. And I think the a lot of my skills started with how I want to protect my brother and sister and myself and her from hurting herself or hurting us. That really was the beginning. I often say to people, and it's the truth, if my mom had been the woman I'd hoped she'd be, I'd not be the man I'm proud to be. Yeah. You know, it was meant to be to make me stronger. And and I know she loved me and I, I've given so many gifts by her. But one, one of those gifts was also that it wasn't easy. And so I, that armed me for what I do today. Do you ever, I've thought about this before, I'm, I'm not great at, at uh, articulating it because I don't fully uh, really wrap my arms around it, but I consider it one of life's conundrums where, you know, to your point, you know, had your mother been what you would have hoped, you wouldn't be where you are now. And in a way, you know, in sports, we see athletes grow up in all different backgrounds and they become yeah. the elite athletes of the elite. And it's because of sometimes that kind of birthplace and impoverishment and and the hard upbringings and and you it's stuff that you would never wish upon anyone but without no. that 
you know, you wouldn't be where you are today. And so it's, it's just, I guess it's a really nasty cliff because to your point, it could go in one direction or you could hot balloon up and change the world. Yeah, I think it's, you know, you have to discipline your disappointment because disappointment either destroys you or drives you. And that's a choice. Hmm. And so it's do, am I willing to give up and spend a life where I've got to explain why my life is to myself, even why it's not what I think it could be, or I got to find a way to grow. And so, you know, I think the common denominator isn't just pain, it's hunger. You can get, you know, like most of the people interact with me, I don't get the lukewarm middle people. I get the best on earth, greatest athletes, greatest business people. They all seek me out because they're the best because they're always looking for that little two millimeters that looks like nothing, but yeah. you take it out a week from now, a month from now, six months from now, you're a different destiny, different destination, hmm. and they know it. And then I also deal with people that are hungry. They, they never lose their hunger. It's why they're the best in the world. But some people get hungry because uh, they start a new business. Or they got a birthday with a zero on it and they look at life differently. Uh, or they just went through a divorce. Or, you know, it's either they're starting something new or they got a big challenge that makes them hungry. But the lukewarm middle, I'm not really happy. I'm not really unhappy. That's the group of people that really are not going to seek me out. I'm not built for those people. I'm built for hungry people. Hmm. And if you're hungry because you're driven and you want to change the world, you're hungry because you want to master a skill, you're hungry because you don't want to settle for shit anymore. Uh, and I'm I'm probably a, a good option for you, one of many, but a good option for you. So I think it's that hunger that's there. So hunger can come from pain, but hunger can also come from desire. You can meet somebody who is so skilled or so talented or such a beautiful soul that you become inspired and say, I could be that too. And I say, so I don't think it's only pain. Pain yeah. started me, but now it's not pain driven for me today. You know, I don't work another day of my life, but I work harder today than I ever have because it's the joy that you get from a meaningful life, which is a life where you feel like you've done something that's beyond you, that serves you know, one human being, 10 human beings, a million human beings. It doesn't matter the volume, what matters is the depth. Yeah, I, I like that a lot, desire. Today's episode is brought to you by Glip. It's a software app that gives companies unlimited access to file sharing and task management for free. Glip can benefit your org through the means of the following. Collaboration on files, creating and managing tasks to deliver projects faster, screen sharing to collaborate instantly with your teams and clients, and unlimited access to messaging, number of users, storage, and more. Now here's some additional fodder for you and your team to think through before you try the service. Number one, 64% of Glip users deliver projects faster than before. And number two, 88% of Glip users are more informed about their organization's projects. Now, on a broader marketplace standpoint, 63% of employees say that collaboration and communication are the most important factors contributing to a company's success. So listen, as a business and team leader, I have to take into account data. And in this case, all point towards culture, communication, and workplace efficiencies. And we found that Glip helps get you there. So try it for yourself by accessing Glip on the go, by downloading the iOS and Android apps, or by using their web-based app. And right now, because you're a Student Up Podcast listener, you can sign up for a free Glip account and get unlimited access to team messaging, task management, file sharing, and more. Go to glip.com forward slash Rabel. That's G-L-I-P dot com forward slash Rabel. And for those that, that are hungry because of desire can read Unshakable, so it's a good segue into, into what I wanted to talk about, which in granularity, talking about finding financial freedom and financial prosperity. And, and that can be achieved whether you're a billionaire or a middle-class family, a young entrepreneur or a nine-to-fiver. 
there's there are tactics that you go through underneath yeah. the strategy. But what jumped out to me and, and something that, that I think about, try to think about daily is true wealth. And and so yeah. kind of aside from, you know, the the athletic challenges and the training and the wins and certainly the defeats or on the business side, on the contribution side of our charities, you know, how do you think about true wealth? Well, to me, it's certainly not money. When people say somebody's a lot of money and that you know makes them rich, I always laugh. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of money are assholes. You know? <laughs> and it, money didn't make them that way. You know, money magnifies whoever you are. If you're mean, you have more to be mean with. You know, if you're loving and giving, you have more you want to give. It's you like they say power corrupts and you're saying that's not the case. That person was already corrupt. That's correct. And what happens is it just magnifies. The more power, the more money, the more whatever, the more it's magnified. But, you know, I look at I asked Sir John Templeton, who's one of the greatest investors of all time. I loved him because he started with nothing and he made all his money during the worst times. You know, like World War II when when Hitler invaded Poland and the stock market crashed and we thought the world was over. He used the money he had and borrowed the rest. Ten thousand dollars bought every stock under a buck. And many of them were on the verge of bankruptcy. But winter, people don't realize winter is a season. Financial winter is the season. It doesn't last. Some winters are longer, some are shorter, but it's always followed by springtime. And springtime, that little $10,000 made him a billionaire eventually. Hmm. So it's like, but when I asked him, what does it take to be truly wealthy? Because I asked him that question. I wanted to hear his perspective. And he's a beautiful man. He said, Tony, it's what you teach. And I said, well, I teach a lot of things. Which part? And he said, it's gratitude. Hmm. He said, you got a billion dollars and you're not grateful for your life. You're pissed off and frustrated every day. Your life is called pissed off and frustrated. You got a beautiful family and you got three children that love you or a husband or wife that loves you or a boyfriend or girl that loves you. And you're worried all the time. Your life is called worry. It doesn't matter how much love is in your life. So gratitude is the real secret to wealth, as corny as that sounds. And so I, I have a process I do every single day. So I start my day to not assume because the human mind, our souls and our spirits are different than the mind. The mind looks for shortcuts. The mind is 2 million years old, the brain. Yep. And you know it looks constantly for how to protect you. It's trying to make you survive. It does not make you happy. So happiness is your job. So it's always looking for what's wrong, what to protect yourself from, what to fight, what to flight, what to freeze, hopefully you're not noticed. It's a survival instinct. If you let that thing run your life, which most of us do, especially under stress, it doesn't matter how much money you have, you're gonna be a miserable suck. You're, you're, just gonna, you're not yep. gonna enjoy any aspect of your life. But whether it's money or whether it's athletics, when you're in a person where you're constantly growing, and in your case, a perfect example, you're not only growing, but athletics is about growing and giving. You're giving to the audience. You're giving to your, your teammates. You know, you're taking it a step further. You're saying, I want to give in multiple venues. I don't want to just give only as an athlete. I want to give in these other ways as well. I want to give knowledge. I want to give skills. I want to give to microloans. You're prospering because you're figuring out how to give more. Yep. And I don't just mean prospering financially. I mean, you have a happier life, a more meaningful life because of that. To me, that's real wealth. Now, having said that, money is still very useful, you know, because, you know, when people don't have money, they usually have relationship problems. They don't have money. They usually have health problems or they have problems with their kids because the stress of that affects them. So it's one of the areas of life that should be mastered. And I, as you said, I don't care if you're a millennial just starting the process, think there's too much debt or a baby boomer thinks, oh my God, you know, there's no time for me. There's a way to win this game. And I wrote this book by saying, I'm going to be the 50 smartest people in the world and get them to tell me, is the game still winnable? Is it bullshit? And if it can be win, show me how I can get the average person to do it, not just the billionaire person to do it. Like, for example, what are people afraid of? Oh my God, I put my money in the market and it's going to fall. Well, first of all, you don't put all your money in any market, right? You got to diversify. Anybody who does that's an idiot. If you put all your money in real estate, Ray Dalio will tell you, 
real estate, stocks, bonds, anything. At some point, they go down 50 to 70%. And if you're older and all your money's there because you're a real estate guy, you're a stock guy, you're bond, you're devastated at that point. So you got to really make sure that you truly diversify and you look at things in a different way. But the biggest thing that I was really focused on writing this book is saying, okay, what's the plan that's going to get people there? And at the most simple level, at the very basic level, it's first you got to make the most important financial decision in your life, which is I'm going to be an owner, not just a freaking consumer. Mm. I'm just going to I'm not just going to buy an Apple phone and then re buy it over and over again. I want to own a piece of Apple, not just Apple, all the best companies I can, even small amounts, and diversify. Second decision, the most important investment decision, when I interview all the top investors in the world, they all agree the most important investment decision is where are you going to put your money or asset allocation? How much of your money is going to go in a secure bucket of investments where it's less risky and there's less return, so you grow slowly, but you keep your money? And how much are you going to put in an area that has more upside maybe, but also more risk, 100% upside, 100% downside, stocks, real estate, things like that. And the ratio of that is where you protect yourself from losing. If you're really young, you can afford to take more risks because you have time on your side. Mm -hmm. If you're older, you're gonna have to be a little more conservative. You have to answer three questions. How much time do I need this money? When do I need it? For how long? If it's five years from now, you got less room to take a risk than if it's 20 years from now or 30 or 40. Second question is, what's my real risk tolerance? You don't wanna be investing in a way that makes you stressed out all the time. The whole point of having the money is so you don't be stressed. So. There are ways to invest that'll make you, based on your profile, less stressed than others. And then third, you know, what's your access to cash flow? If you have a lot of cash flow, you have more risk ability. If you don't, it's tighter. So getting the right asset allocation is critical. And in these books, what I've done is interviewed the best on earth and say, tell me what yours is. Show me how you made the decision so I can guide other people to make those decisions for themselves. Yeah, yeah, that, that's really great. Tactically speaking, you know, there's a, there's a lot that athletes are stereotyped for and one of them being the mismanagement of money but this isn't just an athlete thing we we get very few uh, personal financing courses throughout our our childhood and even through college unless you select that minor or major to take part of so tactics and unshakable around finding that financial prosperity is huge the elite of the elite athletes are those that have the hunger they have that sense of domination they want to be the best and they have the love for what they do, but consistency, what you've done over time, what some of the greats that you've consulted and worked with, like Jordan and Tom Brady and Andre Agassi, how do you encourage that endurance? Is that also part of the process? And at what point do you ever just say, Heck, I'm tired? <laughs> well, I'm tired right now. I just did 15 <laughs> cities in eight countries in six weeks, and they weren't like all Europe. It was like, you know, one day I'm in Vancouver, the next day I'm on Brazil, the next day I'm in Orlando, yeah. Florida, the next day I'm in Scotland, Italy, I had 26,000 people in Russia, you know, then I go to Serbia because I'm building an AI, best people in the world, believe it or not, are in Serbia right now, then I fly 22 hours to Australia, so I'm freaking tired right now. You get the, the energy tired, from that hustle. Yeah, the, the, the tired though, you put that aside when you have something to serve bigger than yourself, that's where the energy comes from. And you, you talk, you know, Tom, a good friend of mine, and one of the things I love about Tom is that guy is mission-driven, man. He is there for his fans. He is there for his players. He is one of the most humble guys, even though he's the most skilled on the planet, what he does. Probably one of the greatest quarterbacks, if not the greatest quarterback in history. Maybe we'll argue back and forth about that, but he's extraordinary. But, you know, that doesn't guarantee happiness, though. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, so I had, I had a surprise. I have a group of people called my platinum partners and I decided to surprise them. And I brought them to my house here, a, this intimate group of them, about 50 of them. They're the biggest donors to my foundation. I want to do something special. So I had them here at the house and I built this tent out here on the ocean and, and they all came out for this little mini seminar. And then I walk out with, you know, Michael Phelps, you know, greatest, you know, Olympic athlete of all time. He's got more gold medals in 66 countries. And a guy that wins by one one hundredth of a second to get that last gold medal. I mean, that wasn't skill. That's just pure will. And then we had uh, Sean, uh, the greatest snowboarder in history, right? Just won his gold medals again. And I brought him out one after another. And we're talking about the art of the comeback. But also, every single one of them, Tom, that's not true. Tom is a little different. But the other two, you know, greatest, greatest Olympic athletes in history and their sports, snowboarding and in swimming, they both had huge bouts of depression after they achieved it all. Hmm. And Michael has talked about that pretty extensively at this point. Michael Phelps has. And it's just amazing for people to see that getting what you want does not make you happy. That you have to find something that's more meaningful because otherwise you get to the goal and you achieve the goal, then your brain goes, is this all there is? Yeah. No matter how great it was, how long does it last? So my energy comes from the fact that I know that life is growth and giving. If you keep growing in any context, you're gonna be happy and you're gonna have something to give and that giving makes life meaningful. If it's just about you, there's only so much pleasure you can have in this body by yourself. Hmm. Drugs, alcohol, rock and roll, athletics, anything that's beautiful or not beautiful, it can make you feel good in the moment. But the only way you're gonna have a lasting level of joy is when you get out of yourself. You know, it's like when people are most excited about something, when they have a great experience, People can be selfish, but when you have a great experience, what does most every human being do? They think of someone they love, they want to share it with. Because when you share it with them, it grows. And so energy, I believe, comes from more than money and more than performance, even athletics. And, you know, I'm an athlete myself. I, you know, I, I work with the greatest athletes in the world, but I also, to do what I do, you know, I go on stage and give you perspective. I do 18 to 21 miles on the first day. I do 26 to 28 miles on the third day where I go from 8 during the morning till 2 a.m. with one one-hour break. And so I brought this group in that works with some of the greatest Olympic athletes in the world because I want to always increase my physical capacity. Because I'm going to hold that audience that won't sit for a three-hour movie somebody made $300 million to make. And I'm going to hold them for 50 hours. It's just me. And some got dragged there. You know, you know, you got really sophisticated people and people that don't give a damn. you got to bring them all together. It's not an easy task. It requires unbelievable energy. So the training I do is insane, but I've increased it because these guys have this super sophisticated heart monitor and acceleration monitor. It's got like everything. It's like $70,000, $65,000. Put it on my chest. And nine hours, first of all, three hours into it, I look at this group of, you know, PhDs. They're all at their computers monitoring me wirelessly the whole yeah, time. Yeah. Their <laughs> eyes are like this, you know, like big. And I'm like, is there something wrong? And like, no, no, we'll tell you later. It's just we've never seen this in any athlete in the world. And I'm like, oh, well, tell me later. So at nine hours, the battery dies. I went for 12 hours. Right? <laughs> stop. At nine hours, the data they collected showed I burned 11,300 calories. You can appreciate this as an athlete, which is the equivalent of two, they explained to me, two and a half marathons back to back, straight away at a, a run-walk pace. Mm. They said, Tony, the amount of calories you burn is not just running up the stadium and keeping 14,000 people engaged. 30 minutes before when I start to engage my mind, my caloric impact from my mind jumps by a thousand percent. It's mine. It's, like it's, it's the energy you're pouring into yourself. Then they showed me, they showed me that I jumped a thousand times in those nine hours, you know, keeping the room going. Yeah. And I weigh 282 pounds. So I'm six, seven. So he explained to me every time you come down, it's four times your body weight and impact. So he said, Tony, you're having a thousand pounds of impact a thousand times in nine hours. 
That's a million pounds of pressure. So they did my bone density and they go, here's humans. Here's the greatest athletes in the world. Here's something we've never measured on earth in all of our years. It's your body. Because when you put a million pounds of pressure day after day on the body, I obviously never broken a bone. The body adapts and it gets strong. And then the last thing I can tell you is, you know, as an athlete, that if you're running with a friend, there's a point at the tempo you go where the lactate builds the four and you can't speak. And I was, after nine hours, I was 12 lactate and still speaking. So in order to have that energy, holy shit, if, if I was just doing this for myself, would I do that? Hell no. You got to have something you care about more than yourself. And Martin Luther King used to say, a man who hasn't found something he's willing to die for isn't fit to live. Mm. That might be harsh, but I kind of like it. I think there's some truth. You don't feel alive, at least, until you find something you want to serve more. That's where the energy comes from, as well as training, as you know, as an athlete yourself. Yeah. The consistency builds endurance, greater capacity. That mind over matter can take you to places that you're acknowledging right now no one's ever been before. In sports specifically, that place that you want to go every year is a championship. And, and, and you talk about often how the, the great thing, the compelling thing about sports for a player, a coach, or a fan is that you don't know what's going to happen. So there's the anticipation, there's a culture behind the scenes, and there's the, clim- there's the climax in that final moment. Yeah. But, but where athletes can deep, d- dive deeply into a depression, as you mentioned, is, is when you don't achieve that championship. I've listened to your conversations with John Wooden uh, previously and, and rest in peace. But what he was really great at is he never talked about winning, but in sports, everyone wants to talk about winning. And in life, you say the happiness is for us unlocked by the frequency of positive moments, not the, the, the climax of one, like a championship. So when you work with a Michael Jordan, when you work with a LeBron James, when you work with a Tom Brady, what have you found? The best in the world are always competing with themselves. Jordan never competed, I should say, never. There was a stage of his life when he decided, I'm not competing with any other human. I'm competing with what I'm capable of, which is growing every day. And that's when he started lifting weights and just transformed his body. But he did that after a lot of pain. You know, he lost to Detroit. He was sitting there crying. He was telling me the story, crying on, on the bus and mad at everybody else. Yeah. And then realizing this is not leadership. Like, this is my job to do. I, I'm not gonna let another person on this earth ever stop me. This is my house. Any court I go on is my home. That level of absolute certainty and the competition with yourself. And at one point I asked him, I said, Michael, I said, you know, why are you the best in the world? I mean, why are the best, probably in history, is it God-given talent, is it skill, is it drive, is it hunger? What, what the hell is it? And I remember he told me, he says, Tony, I can say this straight to you without bullshit, without, you know, trying to, you know, show that I'm humble, he goes, but the truth is I didn't make my own high school team. Most people know the story, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, his coach cut him and he said, you can't cut me. I'm the most talented player. He goes, he's on the best player. He goes, you're not the best. You may be the most talented, but you're far from the best. The best are the people that maximize themselves every day. It's what Wooden said. You know, you, when I interviewed Wooden multiple times over his lifetime, and I was the last person here before he died. It was, it was a beautiful experience with him. But as you said, I asked him, what was the best team he ever worked with? And I, you know, if you know basketball, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, you know, the greatest team he ever worked with, 88 games in a row they won, right? He won 10 out of 12 national NCAA championships with different teams. It's different. It's college, different guys every year. He did not name that team. He named a team I never heard of. And I said, how could you say they were the best? He said, because they maximized their ability even more than the best team. The best team, they would have won, you know, regardless. They were, they were that talented. He said, you know, we trained them and everything else, but that talented. But his whole thing was, you never know the, whether you won or lost by looking at that score. Because you can get lucky, or the other team could get lucky, or you get a bad call in the last moment. There are going to be those times. 
The only way you know you won is what you can control, which is did you give every ounce of yourself every moment you're on that court? Because if you did that every moment on the court, most of the time you're going to have the highest points and you're going to, over time, be the champion. Hmm. But if you didn't give your all and you still have more points, you're a loser. And so that mindset is the mindset that I look at life with and that I try to share with people who get caught up in sports. You know, I got a chance to work with the Warriors last few years, the Golden State Warriors. And, you know, you know, after they've won multiple times, harder for these guys to get up because now they've got agents and opportunities and all these things. And there's mm -hmm. the pressure of it. And, you know, and they had one year where, the, you know, they, they won the most games in the history of the NBA and then they lost the championship in the last game, in the last seconds, right, to LeBron. So harder to get up for that unless you can keep that hunger going. You know, I worked also, you know, it was kind of a surreal experience. I was uh, with the Golden, you know, with the, the uh, Washington Capitals, and I worked with them. And one day I'm in Las Vegas, and they win their first Stanley Cup, and they were hungry 42 years of that one. They only uh, went once, and they lost four games in a row, and didn't score a goal. Yeah. You know, here they win. It was just unbelievably euphoria. And the next day I'm in Ohio, and we win the NBA championship with the Warriors. Yeah. So you got to pinch yourself. But the answer to your question is, hmm. the best – they don't fucking need me. Yeah. You know, they don't need me at all. But because of the best, they look for that edge. And so I'm able to work and find those little refinements. Just like as an athlete, I was a great athlete, but my coaches weren't better athletes than me, but they were better coaches because I was in the game. And that's really all I do with these guys. And everybody has their time. Everybody has the moments when, no matter how good they are, they need some outside input because it's so easy to get caught up in a pattern where you get frustrated. Yeah. So that's really the job that I have. You talked about Michael Jordan and how he used to cry after that Detroit Pistons loss that happened happened in uh, subsequent years. It, it reminded me because you know, pre going into sports psychology about five years ago for myself, and and then what inevitably turned into personal therapy, which I do weekly. Sports was the only outlet for me where when I lost, I would look at my dad and I would cry. And it was the only time I would ever cry in my life. And then I realized it's because I didn't have balance. And, and, and I'd bet that a lot of these elite of the elite athletes, uh, to your degree, you're also working with them on widening their, their viewpoint, right. because you can be so singular focused and so driven in sports that it can, it can hurt you in the long run. Um, I think you're absolutely right. You know, one of the reasons that Tom Brady is who he is and is such a well-adjusted guy in spite of enormous pressures and he's loved and hated by people, you know, the nature of sports, right, yeah. is that he has widened that. You know, mm. he knows what he's doing in football and he's there a million percent, but his wife, his kids, his contributions, his environment, his community, these are all broader elements because in the end, you know, as an athlete, one of the tough parts of being an athlete is, you know, usually around, depends on the sport, around 40 you're hitting the outer edge of what you can really do and be competitive at the best in the world. And so something you did your whole life and you're rewarded for disappears. And so unless you do what you've done, which is diversify and find other meaningful things that will give you that sense of meaning in life, if your whole identity is just an athlete, which it was for me at one point also, never had your skills, by the way, nothing even close. <laughs> I but bet if we gave I you a lacrosse stick, you would have found your way out of the field. <laughs> I'm a son of a bitch. I don't know how to kill him. But the bottom line, yeah, if I hit somebody with that stick and kill him by accident, <laughs> something like that. Bum, you know? He's a friendly giant. But, but I would cry my eyes out also when I do that because my entire identity was I'm a winner or I'm a loser in this. Mm. And so I think that's useful to some extent to produce internal pressure to grow. But at the same time, the greatest athletes are the greatest humans. You know, they, they find a way because that's the only way we're going to have a lasting life. And, and I'm grateful just in your 
your case, you're a perfect example that you didn't just say, oh, this is who I am. You widened who you are, you're deepening who you are. And what are you doing? You're growing and you're giving, brother. And that's what you're doing with this podcast. That's what you're doing with all the work that you're doing. And so you're going to feel more fulfilled than somebody who's only doing the one thing. Yeah, yeah. And and you talk often about handling loss and be solution-seeking for your athletes. And one thing that you referenced earlier when you're talking about your run right now through 37-plus countries and, and speaking and inspiring so many people, you find time every day to meditate. And you have, have a 10-minute meditation practice I've, yes. I've done it. I actually go back to your podcast with Tim Ferriss and we'll do that with you two uh, from a year and a half ago every, every now and then. Uh, can you share that with, with our audience, uh, exactly what you do? I can have a meditative experience with the benefits and some additional benefits if I do what I call priming. Now, what's priming? Most people think their thoughts are their own thoughts. But if you really study this, you know, what psychology has shown is most of your thoughts are primed by the environment or by your upbringing or by the current moment. I'll give you an example. You know, there was a study that was done years ago where they took 200 people, they hired actors, they trained them to say the exact same thing, use the exact same facial expression, and they did it with 200 people. 100 people they walked up to, and they, they have a cup of coffee in their hand, and they start to put it in your hand. They assume the sale, and they go, could you hold this for me for a second? And as they're handing it to you, they look down to their pockets, so they break eye contact. 95% of people take the coffee. They pull their phone out, they fix something, they put it back, they go, thank you very much, and they walk away. And they have the same facial expression, the same approach for 200 people. The only difference is 100 people they hand iced coffee to, the other 100 people they hand hot coffee to. Hmm. Well, what's the deal? 45 minutes later, a person comes back to the area with a clipboard, walks up to these people and says, excuse me, hands them $20. I have $20 if you'll give me a minute and a half of your time to read this little story. It only takes 45 seconds or a minute to read it. And two questions. 98% of people accept. They read the story. It's the same story for all 200 people. Afterwards, they're asked the question, what do you associate to the main character? How would you describe the main character of this particular story? 81% of the people who are given iced coffee say the person is cold and uncaring. 80%, only a 1% difference, it's natural variation, of the people who got hot coffee say the person is warm and generous. There is no difference in the story whatsoever. It's what happened 45 minutes earlier with sending up you iced coffee or hot coffee. There's an example, you know, in, in America, you know, a lot of generalizations are made. And one of them is that, you know, in the sciences or in mathematics, women are not as good as men, which is total bullshit. It's just the way your brain is trained. And another one is that if you're Asian, you're better in the sciences, you're better in math. Well, because, you know, there's a different work ethic that's taught there, right? Yeah. That, that group of people, and that they value education a different way. It's gross generalizations, but as a culture, there's been a different focus on education for people in that area. Generalizations tend to hold up in the way that people look at themselves. So they give people the, the financial, the, the math part of the SAT test, and they change only one thing. For half the group, they said, what's your gender? And they did this with females. Hmm. And the other half of the group, they said, what is your ethnicity, Asian? If the people said, if the women who did this, of all they did was the first question is, what's your gender? They scored 11% lower. If they said the first question they had, and the only question they asked is, what's your ethnicity? And they wrote Asian, they scored 11% higher, a 22% difference. And the only thing different was one question. I'll give you one more example, and I'll tell you what I do. <laughs> If you, uh, most people have seen some of the Think Differently ads that, you know, Apple's done over the years. Yep. And then there's the IBM ads. Well, you can look at their logos. They did it with just logos. They've done it with a 30-second ad. Show them to people. Then give them a creativity test. The people who watch the Apple ad for 30 seconds, 
scored 20% higher in creativity than the person who wants the IBM ad and it's the only difference. <laughs> so knowing that much of our life is not our thoughts, that our thoughts are primed, I decided I'm, I'm in this game for prime time, baby. I'm here mm. to play full out. Uh, but if I just let the environment control me, I don't wake up every day and go, wow, what a magnificent day. There are days I wake up and go, what country am I in? What the hell happened to my neck? You know, what's going on with my lower back? You know, but I can't show up that way. I couldn't serve that way. I wouldn't have the energy for it. So I've got to change my state. So what I do is I don't do a bunch of affirmations. I look for what's real. And here's what I do for 10 minutes. And my view is this. If you don't have 10 minutes for your life, you don't have a life. If it's not 20, 30 minutes, there's no excuse for not 10 minutes. So I do it every day. First thing. I wake up and I do my priming. What is it? First, I make a radical change in my body because that's what changes your emotion and your state and your energy. So I typically will do 30 breaths three times where I take the breath in, explode it out through the nose. It's, if people know, uh, you know, uh, know yoga, it's like fire breathing if you're familiar yep. with it. So it yep. activates the nervous system. Then I take 10 minutes, about three and a third minutes for each task, three tasks. I just do three things. One, after my body's lined up, close my eyes. I can put some music on if I want, but I think of or I'll go outside and just, you know, let the wind blow against me and, you know, I, the oceans, air, whatever I love. And I think for three minutes of one minute each of three things in my life I'm grateful for, which sounds so corny. Why? Because as an athlete, as a businessman, as a human, what are the two emotions that mess up our life, F up our life more than anything else? It's anger, baby, and fear. Mm. They, they, they're two extremes and they're what will mess up your relationship, your business, your health, everything. So what's the antidote? Well, when you're sincerely grateful, I don't mean like you remember something you're grateful over there, like remembering you're on a roller coaster one day years ago. I mean, when you remember like the roller coaster metaphor, you're in the front seat going over the edge, you're in it. When you're that associated something you're grateful for and you spend a minute on it, and I do three of them, you can't be grateful and angry simultaneously. It's impossible. Mm. You can't be fearful and angry simultaneously, or fearful and grateful simultaneously. Gratitude is the antidote to both fear and anger. So I don't hope I'm going to feel it. I, I direct my consciousness to feel it. And I think of three things. And one of them I usually pick is something simple, like the wind in my face or seeing the smile on, let's say, my son or daughter's face or granddaughter's face. And I'll just something that's little because otherwise it's kind of like the guys that went to the moon. You know, his whole life they waited to be an astronaut. They beat, you know, 10,000 other people. You know, they walk on the moon, they see that picture we've all seen of the blue-green earth, they come back and they splash down successfully, the President of the United States shakes their hand, they have a ticker tape parade, now what? What the F do you do for adventure now if you've been to the frickin' moon, you're only 35? <laughs> and if you know the history of these guys, Buzz Aldrin, all these guys, he, they've been very open about it. Most of them got addicted to alcohol and drugs, and they didn't know what to do with their life. And why? Because they didn't learn how to find adventure in a smile. If you gotta go to the moon to do it, you're only gonna do that so many times, your life is over. Hmm. But if you can find it in little things. So I spend three minutes and here's what happens. When you focus on something you're grateful for and you focus in the heart area of your body, wherever focus goes, energy flows. So I can show you a, an AKG, a, you know, I can show you your heart and your head. And when people are, let's say, frustrated, they're very jagged and there's no relationship. That's when people make big mistakes in relationships, when they get in car accidents, they make stupid investment decisions or business decisions. But if you just focus for two minutes on the heart and you breathe, and I do it three minutes, three one-minute experiences that I'm grateful for, as you do that, I can show you EKG and your EGG, and you'll see your brain and heart literally become one. They become rounded, not jagged. They work as one. And that's when you're in the flow state that you and I both know as athletes or as business people mm. or anybody's go. We're just like it all flows. 
So I self-induce that every single morning to start with for three minutes. So it's not a giant task and it feels incredible. And it, it's not like some affirmation, I'm happy, I'm happy. I'm finding things that I'm really grateful for and I'm feeling them. Second, I do three minutes of a blessing or a prayer. And what I do is I imagine energy pouring into my body, like light energy, healing every thought, feeling emotion, making me the best I can be in my passion and my courage and my compassion and my love. And I imagine energy coming through and in and out my body for about three minutes. And the last minute of that, I send that energy out of my heart and bless my children, my wife, my mm. friends, my coworkers, the people I'm going to serve. And corny as it sounds, there's all kinds of studies that show how the brain changes when you're having love and compassion for people you don't even know and people you know. It literally rewires the way the brain functions and makes you happier as well. So while you're doing something that might seem metaphysical for others, it actually changes your own brain and heart. And then finally, the third thing I do is I do what I call my three to thrive, which is I think of three results, three outcomes, three goals that I want to achieve, but I don't think of them as goals. I see it, feel it, experience it as done. I celebrate it like I'm there and, it, and I really go for it. And what it does is it produces more gratitude, but it also creates a sense of completion. And if you know anything about the part of your brain called the reticular activating system, it's a part of your brain that notices what you notice. I mean, mm -hmm. if you bought a car or an outfit and suddenly you see the car and outfit everywhere, they were always around you. Why do you see it now? Because your RAS says, I have one, so it's important, so you see it everywhere. Yep. If you set a goal and you celebrate and it's victory and you do this daily, you own it, your RAS says, this is the most important thing. So you're at Starbucks talking to somebody about something else and you hear this thing about the real estate investment, three people over in a different conversation, your mind finds it. So I do these three acts Three moments of absolute minutes each of, of gratitude, three minutes of prayer and blessings, and three minutes of focus and celebration on what I want, and then I'm done. And it is euphoric when you're done. And that's how I start my day. And I don't have to worry about I going to be primed to be in a good state. I prime myself. And I do it every single day because it only takes 10 minutes. In most cases, it feels so good, I go 15, maybe 18. Yeah. But I know I can do it 10 minutes, so there's no excuse not to do it. That, that's amazing. And that's why you've told athletes to visualize those those best moments that you've been in, the championships that you've played in, those games where you were in your flow state, because most of us before games think about, because of that 2 million-year-old brain, think about what happens if we lose or if I play poorly. So that exercise is great. And Tony, I, I, know, uh, I know how busy you are. I, I love taking that home as an application uh, for myself and for our listeners, but I would have never expected to sit across from you and record, but you've always said trade in those expectations for appreciation. So it's, uh, it's, it's everlasting for me. Thanks again. Thank you, buddy. I look forward to hopefully meeting you in person. If you ever want to come to a live event, reach out to my team. I'm doing one in New York in November and we'll have 14,000 people there. I promise you an experience you will not forget. Love to serve you again, and thank you for serving so many. If you enjoyed Tony and my conversation, as always, please let us know. Among many favorite parts of the interview, I especially enjoyed our conversation on pain and loss. He reminded me, you have to discipline your disappointment. A common denominator in all of us isn't just pain, it's hunger, then gratitude. What did you like? Follow and mention us on social media. His Twitter handle is at Tony Robbins. Mine's at Paul Rabel. You can be the first to listen to next week's episode as well as catch up on previous episodes, including my one-on-one -on -one conversation with New York Times bestselling author and good friend of Tony's, Mr. Sam Walker. Sam wrote the book, The Captain's Class, and he was one of my favorite pods. His and many more are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your pods. Also, when you find us, please hit subscribe and give us a rating and review. It goes a long way. Check out this episode's show notes. 
at studentuppodcast.com. Thank you to today's show sponsor, Glip, a way to get better, faster team collaboration. Go to glip.com forward slash Rabel today. And finally, I'll be at Tony's Unleash the Power Within event in New York this November. If you want to join us, you just email me a code. Go to TonyRobbins.com, locate UPW New York, and at checkout, use code UPW15 to get an extra 15% off the current sales price of an Unleash the Power Within ticket, bucket list, and a great pod. Have a great day, evening, and week ahead, everyone. 